Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. I'm Randall Carlisle, and my cohort is Rachel Santizo. You're looking lovely today, Rachel. Thank you, Randall. Thank you. Have you had a hard day at the office? Yes, it's been back to back. It's actually been quite wonderful, but just back to back. So. Rachel, Rachel, I should say, is one of our program directors at one of our Odyssey residential houses. So she does good work every single day. And I should tell everybody out there that this is one of the most watched podcasts dealing uh, dealing honestly with recovery and addiction. And uh, you can catch us. You can watch us on YouTube. Just Google Odyssey House Journals. And we're available, and we'd like you to subscribe on uh, iTunes, iHeart, uh, Spotify, a whole bunch of bunch places. So um, we always started out with a news story. I'm going to offer you an option here, Rachel. You get to pick one of them. One, one is dealing with college students and marijuana use, and the other is possibly legalizing psychedelic substances in California. Which would you like? The college students. College students. Okay. I'll save the psychedelic for next week. Okay. Uh, this is according to a study at the University of Michigan. Uh, daily marijuana use among college students, so that's every single day, reached an all-time high last year. Uh, found that daily marijuana use rose to 7.9% among college students nationally, and that's an increase of 3.3% over the past five years. So that means like almost uh, nine or no, almost 8% of all college students every single day use marijuana. Any thoughts? Well, was this during quarantine because it was last year? Yeah, it would have been, it would have been during quarantine. So was it because they were at home? So they were getting high and they could because they were doing it online? That would be my guess. It was kind of that goes hand in hand with the, the alcohol use, the rising alcohol use. Yeah. So let's get high and do homework. And get- could very well be the danger here. Uh, the, uh, the CDC says it's a clear health risk because the brain is still developing in your early 20s. And the Surgeon General and others have reported that scientific evidence indicates that heavy marijuana use can be detrimental to cognitive functioning and mental health. So that's, I guess maybe it's harder to learn if you're, if you're stoned and you're, whether you're in class or doing it online. Well, and if you're learning that way, then it's going to kind of stay that way. And so you're not that education level. So if you stop getting high, then where, where are you at mentally, right? And then at that capacity. So it definitely is not a good mixture. I, I know that when I was getting high all the time on alcohol, I uh, I don't I, I suppose it destroyed a lot of brain cells. But I remember I had trouble remembering stuff. I mean, I'm not talking about blackouts, but it was just my memory didn't seem to be as good. Right. Or let's just say even if it's like the way that you act around people. So if you're getting drunk and you're just really sociable and happy and all these things, and then you remove the alcohol and then you go into work and you're not, it it's completely changes you. Right. So especially at that young age, this is, it's not a good concoction or setup for your future endeavors for sure. All right, you pick pot. Now you get to introduce us to our guest today. Oh man, this, our guest today is a definitely 
Um, we're actually really lucky to have this, this gentleman on our show this week. So he's an incredible soul. He has walked through a lot. He, he definitely is one of the most courageous, gentle-hearted people that I know. And what I adore most about this man is that he continually works on his sobriety, no matter how challenging or how good it is going. This man puts in the work and he works hard at it and he's constantly looking at himself and everything around him. And so his story, I'm excited for him to share his story to the world and, and who watches this podcast to see even after a decade of sobriety, what he does and how he does it because he's incredibly smart. And oh man, without further ado, Chris and Hello, good to see you guys. Wait, she describes you as an amazing person. Well, I um, maybe I'm good at faking it, but I try every day. Uh, and, and she brought up a good point. Uh, you know, that she said you work on it all the time, and, and both she and I are in recovery as well. And, and really, addiction is a complicated lifelong disease. And you can't, you're not cured. Uh, but you can control it for the rest of your life. So it's important to work on it all the time. Maybe you could start and give us some of your background and tell us uh, how how everything happened. Sure, sure. I, um, you know, it took me a long time to realize what I have is a living problem, not a using problem. And, you know, when I came back into recovery, I'm one of the lucky ones that through relapse that I was able to make it back. And you know, I thought I thought the problem was really alcohol and drugs. I thought it was you. <laughs> I thought it was him, her, everyone else. I thought it was that, you know, there were just some times that things didn't go my way. Um, and I just needed a little bit of release, you know, and um, well, really for a second and people who don't understand addiction, almost every single person I know who's in addiction blames everyone else for their problems. Yep. I mean, you know, I went through four wives and it was all their fault. That's why I got divorced. But now with sobriety, eh, pretty yeah. much my fault. So go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. But. Yeah, no. And and listen, I I um I had to be broken open. And and I'll and I'll I'll get to that moment. Um, but what happened for me is, and I still remember, um, nine years old, I made a decision that I couldn't trust anyone or anything. And I still remember, I, I made a decision that um, essentially every room I went into at that point, I was in threat assessment, which meant, I don't know you, I don't know you, not, I don't know you, I'm not sure I can trust you, I need to get out of this room alive, so I'm always in threat assessment. And so what that created for me was a space that said, I've got to figure this situation out. I got I to gotta manage it, I got to figure it out, and I got to make sure I survive it. And that stayed with me for a long time. You know, and and I still remember as a teenager, the first time I took a drink and I felt the alcohol go down my throat and into my body, it took that away. It completely took it away. And what I mean by that is I don't trust anything or anyone. I kind of look at the world like I don't really understand what's happening or what's going on. And then I take a drink and it takes it away. So for as a, a teenager, that's a pretty big solution. It was not a workable solution. It was not a good solution, but it was a pretty big solution. And just like you guys were talking about the beginning around the marijuana story, you know, what I needed, that's my living problem. I don't know how to navigate. And therefore I need something 
to take the edge off. I need something to make me feel okay. I need something to, to make my skin fit, right? Now, I found a new way to make my skin fit in sobriety, but it took me a long time of using and drinking to do that. And it, it took me, sure, there were fun stories, right? And um, there were fun times, but far more times where drinking and using led me to was alone by myself with tears strolling down my face and snot running out of my nose saying, how did I get here again, right? Um, you know, I, I, I think a lot of people can relate to this, but um, it got so bad for me that I would get in my car to go somewhere and my car would never make it. My car wouldn't go where I wanted it to go. I would want to go to work. I would want to go to a meeting. I'd want to go to the grocery store and it would wind up at the liquor store or the dealer's house. And I wasn't participative in that. I didn't want it to happen. It was your car. Time. My car. My car did it. Yeah. Um, I would wake up in the morning, especially during relapse. You know, I heard just don't drink or use no matter what, which sounded like a good idea to me. So I would wake up and I'm not going to do it. I see where my life goes if I drink and use. An hour later, Randall, not only am I drinking or using, it's the best idea I ever had. So the insanity and the powerlessness that go along with my disease, um, I'm in denial because the whole time I'm thinking what I need to do. I utilized recovery uh, for, for the first couple of years and then to relapse as I need you to tell me what I need to do so that I can stay sober. There's a lot of eyes in that statement. And so what I needed was to completely fall apart, be brought to my knees October 31st, Halloween. I didn't choose that date of 2010. I, I had a 36-hour run after, after reaching out to family and friends to help me. I had a 36-hour run because my car didn't go to work, <laughs> right? And so people couldn't find me. And, and I had put more alcohol and drugs in my body in a 36-hour period in that moment than I, than I ever had in my life. And I'm looking at the mirror and I'm stone cold sober, completely sober. I don't have the effects or feeling of alcohol. So I need something to help me release, have comfort, feel okay. I need something for my skin to fit. And all of a sudden it didn't work. Right. And so for me, what happened was I was so scared and I was either going to die that day or for whatever reason, a thought popped in my head of my friend, Jim telling a similar story and I picked up the phone and called him and he showed up. I gave up my wallet, my keys to my family because I don't trust myself, right? It was the first time I went from, I need you to tell me what I need to do to I'm gonna do whatever you tell me to do. I'm in the we. I went from I to we, I get drunk, I use, I do stupid stuff. We stay sober, we get through it. We're relatively sane. On my own, I'm insane. If I'm in the we, I'm more sane. I have a chance. And that's my story. I've, I've never left. I've been in for 10 years now. What, to, what I, taking you back to nine years old, why were you feeling that threat factor uh, at, at that age? Yeah, you know, I, I experienced some sexual trauma, you know, that, that I didn't know how to make sense of at that age. And, and you know, in the religion that I grew up in, um, I didn't know much, but I knew I was going to help. And what I understand now for a nine-year-old, that's some pretty heavy adult thoughts to have, you know, didn't know how to make sense of it, certainly didn't know how to talk about it. I just wasn't able to talk about it. So as that kind of went forward and I held it all in, now I look at it instead of saying, 
why did I start drinking at 15 years old? And I say, no wonder I started drinking at 15 years old. I can't believe I made it that far, you know? And so that kind of perspective and recovery and learning and understand moves from shame, right? To a little bit more of, of course I did these things. I was just trying to survive, you know? And that kind of little bit of a switch has a massive impact on the way that I can live my life to. So, so how many years did you uh, drink and use uh, until you called Jim and, and started to get clean? Yeah, I, um, so but first go around with treatment was in 2007, March, and I had a healthy run. And in 2007 in March, I was, oh, geez, I was 32. Um, so from 15, it was kind of sporadic for a while, but it really picked up when I was 19, 18 and 19. And so from 18 to 19 to 32, call it 14 years, it just kept getting more, more, more. And then it really started spreading out with all sorts of drugs and other substances. Um, and that's when I got sober at 32, started relapsing about a year and a half in, and then came back in when I was 35 in 2010. So what do you attribute your... Uh, so, Brian, that switch going, I, I know you hit that point where you called Jim and you did the we thing, but what, what was it, was it the treatment facility or your brain or what that, that, that caused this, this switch to flip? Yeah, I, man, I wish I could understand that. Um, all I know is on that day, something changed and, and, you know, step one and 12-step recovery, you know, says we were powerless and couldn't manage our lives. Right. Um, the way that I see that in hindsight is step one happened to me on that day in full. Like, I didn't do it, but it happened to me. I had never felt so powerless and that I couldn't manage my life. And those two things together, um, if I'm not going to die that day, then I the only other option was to reach out. And that's when I started holding on to everyone's coattails and just doing whatever they told me to do. I, so I managed a team at the time. My parents had, had recently um, uh, retired and they took turns living with me for three months because I didn't trust myself driving. And so they would drop me off at 6.30 in the morning before anyone got to work because I didn't want to see I didn't want to see my colleagues in my team saying I needed my parents to drive me to work, but I was still too afraid to drive. And so I would get rides to meetings. I would get rides home from meetings. I would go to coffee. I would hang out. And what happened for me is the we then jumped on me, right? The we surrounded me in a way that allowed me to feel safe that, I mean, heck, I, I wasn't driving, but I knew I could get from point A to point B if someone was driving me in the car, you know? And so that, that switch that you mentioned, Randall, I think um, it happened to me and, and I'm really grateful that it happened. You know, you know, it strikes me, if you would have just gotten rid of that damn car way back when you were using, you wouldn't have had to go through all this stuff, you know? It's true. It's true. I wonder what make it was. That, that, I, I've never found a car that, that drives you to the liquor store automatically or to your dealer's house. Yeah. I Well, and, you know, here's a, I had an upstairs kind of... Um, area in my house and I remember I put alcohol up there and the thought process was who's going to walk up the stairs to get alcohol and every time I walked up the stairs to get alcohol I'm like why am I walking up the stairs so whether it was me walking or driving I lost the power you know I just didn't have it Rachel any thoughts yeah so during this time 
Chris, what happened after? So you you had your parents assisting you. How did you get from that? So we have a lot of families that watch this, right? And so you were doing drugs and you were doing um, alcohol, using alcohol, drinking it. And then, so you got some assistance, right? But you can't have your parents drive you around and your friends drive you around, although you need community and support. But how did you get out of that and move forward, like employment, all of those yeah. things? You, get yeah. from that? you know, it's a good question. In 2007, my, my first kind of crash and burn looked way worse on the outside. But on the inside, that switch hadn't flipped, right? This time in 2010, it, I still had the job. Right. I still, you know, I was in debt, but I still, you know, I was resemblance of doing okay on the outside, but I was falling apart on the inside like I never had. And so for me, um, what started for me for my sponsor at the time and my friends is I realized I needed Chris's team. And I've always had Chris's team from that point on. And it's usually somewhere in the 10 to 12 people in my life. There's three or four that have never left right, that have been there. Others come and go, sometimes for a couple of years, sometimes for six months. But Chris's team, when I get surrounded in that and I get connected in that, here's what I found. When I started driving, the first time I left work to go to my meeting on Tuesday night, I was scared because when I was relapsing, I didn't make it to that meeting many times, yeah. right? Um, so a friend told me, why don't you, you have a cell phone, right? I said, yes, I do. He said, well, why don't you call people on the way to the meeting? I said, well, geez, that's a novel idea. I think I can do that. <laughs> One of the Tuesday nights, I remember leaving 14 voicemails on the way to the meeting, 15 minutes away, right? And what I found was I left those 14 voicemails. I made it to the meeting. And during the meeting and after, almost all of those people called me back and left a voicemail. You know, and it was that kind of stuff that I learned new ways to handle things because, because I have a living problem, right? So now I'm sober. I don't have to drink or use, but I bump into life and I don't like it. Just this week, my work life changed. Some things moved around, some uncertainty, didn't really like it. I had feelings about it. Anxiety, threat assessment jumps back in, right? What I learned was call people. Say a prayer whether or not you think it's going to work. Go to a meeting. Breathe. That's a novel one. I've learned these things that I can do, you know, so I can lay my head down sober. I mean, it's crazy. I, I, I've never once woken up in sobriety and thought, man, I wish I had drank or used last night. It just <laughs> doesn't happen. Yeah. So you're still doing the same things that you did back then 10 years later. That's right. Just applying it at different parts of my life because if I can catch it when I have the feeling, then it doesn't have to get to the using, right? So it's the same tools, it's the same spiritual principles that are about connection and love and acceptance and being a part of that always get me through whatever I'm going through. You know, I've had health problems, relationship problems, family problems. Um, I've lost jobs, gained jobs. I mean, in recovery, I've experienced things that when it happened, I didn't know what to do. And all I did was reapply what you guys told me to do um, and even though sometimes it goes on longer than I want, um, even though I'm yelling uncle well before it may release, um, I found that I can get through it, you know, and that's, that's a miracle, absolute miracle. Okay, on, an, on another topic, I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, what do you think of, of Rachel? I, you think she's good looking? What, what's your opinion of her? She's absolutely stunning. Look at her. Beautiful. 
All right. Now, everybody watching is going to say, what the hell is he doing asking a question like that, which leads me into you. You heard Rachel's introduction of you, which was very loving and kind. Uh, uh, before I before I do the big reveal, why don't you give me your description of Rachel? Um, you know, I I don't think I've ever met someone that is as resilient and inspiring and loving as Rachel. Not to mention the the uh, the obvious the obvious beauty on the outside, right? That's right. That's right. All right. Well, you know. I, I, just being an outside observer, it sounds to me like you guys might be a good fit together in in, in some kind of relationship. I, it's a thought. What do you what, what do you think? Well, I think I think we've been together what year and a half now. <laughs> yeah, we have. We have. They actually, and, and for all of you watching, uh, they they have been uh, in a, a loving, committed relationship for quite some time now, and and. Uh, that raises an issue because uh, when I remember when I first uh, when I first got sober uh, in in both the treatment program and AA meetings, they said don't ever date or fall in love with somebody who is in your boat, like an alcoholic or a drug addict. Uh, but you guys are doing that, and you both are in recovery. How does how does that work? And 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 do you have to. You, do you have to be careful? Because like if, if one of you would relapse, would that cause the other to relapse? I mean, those are all issues that have to be faced if you're a couple like you are. Yeah, I, um, I have to have faith in every aspect of my life or recovery doesn't work. And part of what that faith looks like, it's not a religion. Um, it's, not, it's not some dogmatic approach to what God is or isn't. What I mean by faith is... I have to know that I can be okay no matter what's going on in my life, no matter if I have a job or don't have a job, if I have a relationship or don't have a relationship, if I've gained 20 pounds or lost 20 pounds. Um, and, and so if that's true, what that looks like for me is, um, so if I have a living problem that I, I have to have help with how to navigate life because I bump into life, it bumps back and I have feelings the stakes are incredibly high in a romantic relationship. Um, I, had, I had a belief when I was really young that said, when I find the right girl, then everything will be fine. And, and what I now understand about that thought and that statement, it means I'm willing to do anything I need to do to get that relationship and keep that relationship. And most of my work in sobriety right now and in the relationship is how can I be me no matter what, take care of myself so that I can be present in the relationship. And Randall, I'm telling you, I don't always do the best job, right? I get on slippery footing. I lose myself a little bit, um, but that's okay. Um, if I'm in the we, if I've got Chris's team, um, then I can be in the relationship. And if I'm feeling that, then I can pull myself out and do the same things I've done before. I can do an inventory. I can talk to someone else. I can say a prayer. I can sit and breathe and realize that no matter what, I can be fine. So how would I be loving, kind, transparent um, in the relationship? Rachel, you, you uh, I'm sure you talk, you know, you deal with your clients all the time and you probably talk about relationships a lot. Uh, how do you, how do you deal with this whole situation? 
So I think the key word is, is healthy relationship. Like we have a very healthy relationship. And, and what I mean by that is that we put our recovery first. So our recovery um, journey actually looks different. So Chris is very big on AA and mine is a different journey than that. I respect his and I understand it and I allow him. I Not that I tell him, I don't give him permission. What I do is I allow him this space. So if he says, I need a meeting, there's no questions asked, you go to a meeting. And that's what I mean by that. I don't cause any grief. I don't ask any questions. Like when it comes to anything recovery and he speaks his language the way he needs to, go and get it. So we have our recovery journey and we keep that separate. We're supportive that he would, um, like we can go to meetings and stuff together, but it, we're also, we keep it separate. Our recovery is our recovery and that has to come first before anything else. And we're also, we're very supportive of each other and where we're at. And what that means is that we don't try to fix each other and we don't try to make, um, so if I'm struggling, Chris doesn't try to fix me. What he does is he walks beside me and I do the same for him. So if, if he's going through something, I don't try to fix him. I just give him a safe space to be what he needs to be and walk beside him. And that's the best feelings. We just get to be us and allow us to still, because this recovery thing, we're still working really hard on it and we're going to continue to have to. So it's more of this like partnership and space so we can still work on our recovery and be in a loving relationship. So work on our love part and our love for ourselves and sobriety at the same time. And that's, that's what's successful in my opinion for us. Tough question. What if one of you relapsed? How would how would you respond? Like let's say Rachel Chris relapses. How would you respond? And I'll ask you the same question, Chris. Uh, we've kind of talked about it, but then I I haven't put so much thought into that part because I think I when it, I would wait for if it happened, and I would deal with it at the time because I wouldn't want to just turn away, but it would be something that he would have to take care of. I would have to protect myself first and give him this space to allow him to either he's going to correct or not. If he doesn't correct it, then I need to do what I need to do for me and my recovery. Um, and if he, if he was willing to or take the steps, then I would walk beside him. So it would depend on what he was willing to do next because I think people lapse and I think people, you know, but if it was a full-blown relapse that he wanted to continue on that journey, I need to keep myself first. I have grandkids, I have kids, and that needs to come first. My ultimate life and what I've worked so hard for in my life always needs to come first, no matter how much I love someone and I love Chris very much. Chris, how would you respond, Chris? Yeah, Rachel articulated that incredibly well. I, I, um, if if I don't have my sobriety, then everything's gone. That that's my belief because once that goes, it's just a matter of time that everything else falls down. And 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 it would be the same for Rachel. And so, just like in my life, I have certain boundaries with people that I hang out with. Right? I'm not going to hang out with people drinking and using in the same space I am because it's just not something that works for me, that I feel good about that. And so if those boundaries are in my life for my recovery, those boundaries would have to extend to the relationship and vice versa. Rachel would have to have those boundaries. And so it, it's not about would we stay in it or not stay in it. It would be, can those boundaries be kept and can the other person get where they need to get so that recovery is the base life for each of us? Let me ask you one more tough question, Rachel. You, if, if, if one of your clients 
uh, said, I think I'm falling in love with somebody else here at the house that you're program director at. I, I presume you would advise them against it. And, and, and then if they said, yeah, but, but Rachel, you're sort of doing the same thing. How would you respond? Oh, as far as like with me doing the same thing with Chris? No, well, yeah, they'd say, well, wait a minute. You fell, you fell in love with somebody who's an addict? Oh, well, honey, you're you're new at this. You're just finding yourself. It would be good. Okay, how I'd respond here is because in my facility, though, my clients are barely learning to love themselves, or my conversation would be more directed towards you need to learn to love yourself first. So if it was if it was someone um, down the road or I was sponsoring or they had some time under their belt, it would be a completely different situation. But here, oh no, like learn to love yourself. There's there's some work and it takes time. So I, I fully support that. Wait until you've been sober a year because all that love, let's let's direct that towards you before you try to direct it towards someone else or give it towards someone else. Perfect. So, yeah. Perfect answer. You know. People don't realize that, and I think all three of us can testify to that, is that when you're using or, or yeah, when you're, when you're getting high all the time on whatever substance, you don't, you don't love yourself. You don't like yourself, right? Yeah. Right. So, yeah. I mean, what, what, when I came in um, to, to sobriety again, I hated myself, I hated you, and I hated everything. I wasn't... I wasn't quite as aware of how much I hated myself and I hated you at the time. I can see it in hindsight. Um, and over time, man, this process, first on the outside cleaning up and then cleaning up the insides and back and forth, um, <laughs> the peace, the happiness, the removal of shame, um, the connections and the friendships and the family relationships are priceless. And um, I wouldn't change anything in my past. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it, even though I caused harm and, you know, gave worry to my family. Um, my life is unrecognizable to 10 years ago. Um, and, and recovery has become a launching pad to do things I could have never imagined possible. Right. And, um, and that includes um, getting in cool relationships. It includes changing jobs. It includes learning new things. Um, um, so I wouldn't change it at all. We we are out of out of time. Uh, th this has been really enlightening to me because I've dealt with a lot of these issues as well. And I think an awful lot of people, you know, just because we're in recovery doesn't mean we shouldn't fall in love or have a good relationship, right? You know. So uh, yeah, that this has been this has been very enlightening, and I I want to Rachel. And Chris, I want to thank you for allowing me to uh, illuminate your personal life and talk about it a little, because that's sometimes very difficult. But I think it's important for people to see. So any final thoughts? I, I, I'm so grateful to be here um, right now. This is I love you guys. I care about you both. And I'm really grateful to be here. This is incredible. Rachel? I love you both. I have two good men on my side. So it's, it's just been nice to be able to be open and vulnerable. Like I haven't been able to, to do this or be um, open or even want to do something like this in healthy relationships, whether if it's in a relationship with someone or even Randall. Randall, I didn't like you at first. Like I had to make an amends to you. And you're like one of the most important men in my life. 
right? Like we have our own story. So it's like the relationships and just growth and what sobriety can bring and being open. So it's kind of, um, I'm, a, I'm a lucky girl. And so thank you for just being here. This is a great way to end a beautiful Friday. Well, people may be watching on a different day, but it is, a, we're recording it on a Friday afternoon. So, and can you feel the love in the air? Yeah. Love is everywhere. <laughs> hey, thank you all for, thank you for sharing your thoughts and feelings. And thank you for watching another edition of Odyssey House Journals.